Hello, and welcome to the next episode of The Prestige, a podcast about films, filmmaking and film theory. Each week we'll focus on a particular movie chosen by one of us and let a theme develop out from a review or discussion of that and see where it takes us. And as always, we'll end with some recommendations based on this week's films, based on the themes, based on the discussions. Be always open by introducing ourselves. So who are we? My colleague on this podcast is Sam B. Knowles, a uh, published author writing about books and movies and comic books and pop culture and racism and all the kind of world of uh, literary theory around those things. He's been my friend for far too many years. He's seen half the random films that I make him watch over the years. Um, yeah. And we've been raying about movies for about a decade and a half. And we thought we'd put it on a podcast for you guys. My name's Rob Maythorn. I am a film colourist and photographer. I spent the last 10 years working in the British film industry, working on small productions, big productions and everything in between. These days I make films about photography. I run a, a, vid- a video series called Kaiju Academy in which I teach people how to how to photographs and how to make better photographs. So Sam. Yes. This week's film. This week's film, Looper. Set in 2044, Looper deals with um, subject of um, hide killers who dispose of targets sent from the future, 2074, via the highly illicit medium of time travel, which has been invented in 2074, but is only used by criminals. Um, these mercenaries, called Loopers, as a result of their indebtedness to a loop in time travel, are themselves disposed of by the mob, so sent back in time for their former selves to shoot, whereupon they have 30 years of highly paid retirement before death. And our two leads in this film, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis, play two incarnations of one looper 30 years apart. Now, I really like this film, and... In order to like it, there is a massive suspension of disbelief involved, and I would encourage none of you to focus too. Don't don't focus too much on on the plot because the required suspension of disbelief becomes too much, and the whole film comes crashing down. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- this is the basic setup: Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Bruce Willis are two incarnations of a looper. Um, they encounter Emily Blunt, who is living as a single mother with her only son. Um, and the movie goes from there. So, Rob, your thoughts? I saw Looper at the cinema when it first came out, being both a fan of the director and its two main stars. It was Rodney Alley, and it didn't disappoint. I think Sam's right that if you poke too hard at the the underlying logic of it it tends to fall apart. But I would say that's true for almost every time travel film out there. Because mm. uh, uh, time travel essentially is a fantasy construct. We haven't got hard and fast rules of how it works. And unlike something like, I don't know, warp travel from other films, where we can go, well, these are the rules. Time travel is so far out of our world that you can't do it. So I'm, I'm happy to suspend that disbelief, shall we say. Mm. I think the film, from a sort of, Design and production science did great work. I felt it really felt like, you know, twenty years from now, thirty years from now, mm. in that 
it didn't feel like Star Trek. It didn't feel like we're living a whole new world. It didn't feel like Tomorrowland. It felt like a slightly worse and slightly more advanced version of today. Mm. And I kind of like that. It felt like it was kind of that Minority Report style near future rather mm. than future future tech. Yes. Yeah. I think that the the two main guys who do carry the film very much, uh, Jason Gordon-Levitt, Bruce Willis, both playing Joe, I think they're both really good actors. I think both did really well here. They did a lot of prosthesis work on Jason to make him look more like Bruce. Hmm. And at times I found that a bit distracting. Right. Because it, it, it's that strange suspension of disbelief we have with a film where you can look at someone and go, well, yeah, but they're a, do- they're a doctor, they're a scientist, they're a, an astronaut. And we believe that. But I kept looking at Jason Gordon-Levin going, you don't look like that. No. And I don't know whether it's just the prostheses aren't as amazing as they have in other films, but I just kind of at times didn't buy that. And I think he did a great, great work of kind of having a similar mannerisms. He felt acting-wise and style-wise and character-wise, he nailed that whole Bruce Willis style very well. But sometimes the hair and the makeup kind of knocked me out of that a little bit. I thought Bruce Willis was great. He had that kind of like, what he does, he has that grizzled, old, I've seen it all, world-weary, but also felt like he could do the things he does in this film. He isn't he isn't a good guy in the film, mm. despite everything that happens to him. And his intentions very much are honourable, but he isn't a good guy and he doesn't do good things. But you felt like he knew he wasn't doing good things. Yeah. And there wasn't, there wasn't any glee in it. There wasn't any... any kind of... There was remorse and there was acceptance that he was doing. He knew he was doing bad things, but he saw the end goal. Um, Mm. I love Emily Blunt. I've got time and time with that woman. I think she's amazing and she lifts everything. I like it. I don't think it was as revolutionary as something like The Matrix or that kind of Ilka film, but it was certainly better than most dumb action films that are that come out these days. Sam? Yes. I, I agree with you. That it's, it's not amazing, but it is a perfectly serviceable film. Um, and I particularly, something I really liked about this is what you brought up there is that this is a vision of the near future and some things are better but some things are significantly worse. And it is an extension of ideas about commercialisation and capitalism. And you have um, obvious inequalities at the very beginning of the film. So you, th- this is a very believable social social environment. And you have mm. um, Seth having a go at a beggar right at the beginning. And you think... That that is uncomfortably close to any number of other situations you could think of from from now, um, and mm. I I really like I really like that this wasn't. Um, it's something I I haven't put it in as a recommendation for this week because I can't bring myself to recommend such a terrible film, but it's something that Johnny Mnemonic did very well. Is that <laughs> there is there is one. One one part of that one that, that is actually really good. If if you're willing to suspend disbelief 
to a certain extent and forget the fact that it's being acted by a complete imbecile and so many other things about that film. But there is actually a, a really good... There's a grain of good about that film. Um, mm. So, yeah, not, not a recommendation for this week, but I do think that there's there's something of, of that uh, movement. There's slightly... Something there's a combination of utopian and dystopian future to this. That yes, there yes. are good things, but yes, there are there are fundamentally bad things as well. And I thought that that Ryan Johnson got that combination exactly right. Um, yeah, I think that for me is what often sells this kind of sci-fi to me is that you aren't the film has a world that has you know a premise based on that on that that world presenting but you don't spend too long on it Mm. yeah you know the cars are a bit better there's a hover bike there's you know slightly better guns or slightly different costumes and it gets that world building out of the way so quickly and so fast and so smoothly that the film then becomes about character Mm. rather than about the trappings of this future world yeah, and I think so often cipher films get lost in that kind of look at all the cool things we can do now. We've got teleporters, whereas this kind of took the idea of time travel and ran with it to a point where it's about about character within that, about identity and that kind of thing. Mm. Yes, I I also really like the way that um, the, there's something something that sort of celebrating oh wow was an amazing we've got hoverboards that attitude of to futuristic filmmaking that this film definitely didn't have and it's brought up by something like um the TK attributes right at the beginning um the the mm. focus on telekinesis as it's, it's only 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 really sad people use it to chat up girls in clubs and that is just it's just a matter of course it's what happens right at the beginning of the film so whatever mm. happens later in the film to do with a telekinesis right at the beginning you've got Johnson or the script or whoever it might be being being particularly dismissive of this this one futuristic element I think that that, that echoed again in the hoverbike mm. now in, in the film Seth the best best friend okay, has a hoverbike and it never works. Joe has a car, and it's lovely, it works, but it's like this, this idea of the future, this hover bike that they have, it just fails at the start, and it almost gets Joe's killed later on. Mm. Um, and the film ends with almost a comically tiny little like um, smart car van thing. And I think that's, as I say, that kind of, this is the future, but it's got the shine knocked right out of it. And you have aside. Yeah, I'm just just thinking of that that moment when um, Joe shoots an agent of bike. I can't remember his name. Um, Jess is it Jesse? Yes. I haven't watched too much Breaking Bad recently. No, it is Jesse. Um, and he Je- Je- and yeah. he he rides off a bike into a dust cloud that Joe throws up, and Joe shoots him off his bike. And the end of that little scene is of a bike grinding to a halt. And you think that mm. that is a metaphor for that part of that aspect of the film that you've just brought up is that there are certain certain futuristic parts of this film that he that just get get ground into the dirt and just just quite literally yeah. disposed of. 
in that scene. I, I, I would agree. I think that's where, like, the kind of is this film sci-fi, and that's where the, what is the nature of sci-fi comes into question a little yeah. bit because sci-fi often, as I said, can be about the science fiction. It's, it's a fiction about, about science, and like, if it's set in the future, is it inherently sci-fi? Yeah. Or is it just a story about people that happens to be in the future? You know, I, I haven't watched it myself, but Parks and, Recre- Parks and Recreation, uh, it's a very popular series. And what I gather, the last series is about five years in the future. Right. But I wouldn't call it sci-fi, that kind of show. No, no, exactly. And I, I, and I would struggle to call this sci-fi in many ways. Hmm. Um, and I think that sometimes we're very keen to slap everything with the title of sci-fi if it's in the future. Yes, and you have something, um, well, like you, I haven't seen Parks and Recreation, but I have seen the latest series of House of Cards, which um, this is, no, um, I'm aware that you don't give spoilers for anything on Netflix nowadays, so I'm not saying anything when I say this focuses on the 2016 election and the run-up to that. So there are parts of this series which sort of move into the very slightly near future in the same way. But you would never call that sci-fi. You'd never call that... You'd never even call that speculative fiction, the sort of no. overarching umbrella. Um, so I think, I think that, that's something that I wanted to bring to the table this week, was the idea that there are... And we've had before um, gangster films which are not about gangsters. And this is an example of a fantasy film or a sci-fi film that's very definitely not about science fiction. It is about the relationship between um, Joe and Emily Blunt's character or Emily Blunt's son or the relationship between the different incarnations of Joe. And I think it's much more interesting to think about the film in those terms than to necessarily focus on the the hoverboards. Yeah, I think the one one of the notes I made watching this is that in many ways it's closer to a Western than it is to a sci-fi film. Uh, Especially if you look at some of the stylings of of the Gap Men, Mm. there's a lot of kind of Western themes certainly on on there. And but it just had that same kind of feel of of the soul the soul gunslinger mm. against a an army or against the man in black and for me it felt very western and especially the, the sort of some of the shootouts were very kind of standoffish staring across an open field and it say it really kind of struck me as as you say like it's it's a sci-fi film but it is in many ways but it's also I felt a very western kind of style film in that mm. old West tradition. And I think if, if, if there's a flash forward, shall we say, into Joe's life post being a looper. Mm. And the scene in that in which the Rainmaker, who's the, the big nemesis in the future, his men turn up to capture Joe. And they almost couldn't be more Western. They're so kind of with the wide brimmed hats and the long sort of dust jackets. It, and despite being set in the future in Shanghai... All I, very much what I got was was that kind of Western theme from it. And and actually, one one of the things that um, Ryan Johnson said about the film is that it was only set in Shanghai for financial reasons. And he, mm. as is fairly obvious by the beginning of the film, it, he wanted Joe to go to France. 
Um, yes. And there is that sense that there's a return to to Europe, and maybe there's there's a sort of return to sort of quite self consciously European filmmaking about it. That he didn't he didn't want to go into the future in Shanghai. He he definitely wanted to go back to quote unquote the old world. Mm. I think that this is where we get into kind of the world of hard sci-fi versus soft sci-fi if you know what I mean by that Sam no, say more Okay, Uh, in a very loose term hard sci-fi is the the fiction of science so hard tends to be military sci-fi right, yes It it tends to be much more focused on the harshness of science and technology and that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, and it tends to, within a certain world, play by realistic rules. Mm. So the idea being that the science, whilst being fantastical in its own way, is rooted in some kind of science. So in a literary way, things like Kim St. Robinson's Red Mars and that kind of 80s sci-fi is very hard sci-fi. It's all about what would really happen. Right. If we went to Mars, how would we do it? Really, how would we do it? Mm. And obviously they, there are inventions of narrative to keep it interesting, but hard sci-fi is more concerned with the realities of science. Right. Hard, hard sciences in that kind of um, academic mm. way. Soft sci-fi is much more about the kind of everything around that so i mean the great distinction would be star trek versus star wars okay star trek whilst it does flirt with being softer at times is probably more hard sci-fi in that there are theories about what hind why warp travel works how phases work and there's a a hard science behind everything that happens even if it is fantastical star wars is laser swords and jedis Mm. And there is there isn't a a hard science behind what happens on screen. No, if you see what I'm saying. It, I was thinking. Actually, I was talking to a colleague today about um, thinking of um, literary and and cultural examples of various tropes, and we were thinking about how something like Star Wars is very Shakespearean, and we were trying to think mm. of it in Shakespearean terms. Um, this sounds a less interesting conversation than it was, um, but there is something in that in that in that you can take Star Wars and well, it's been you can you can hear it say described as a as a space opera as a soap opera set in space, and it's it's just a timeless story taken and transplanted into this particular arena where wherever this story comes from mm. yeah i think that that's i know that's, that's that's kind of a nice way of looking at it in many ways and i think that there's this film like i think it's it's kind of sits somewhere between the two because as we said it isn't about the science and i think there are a few paradoxes in it and there are some things that are whether that they, they work in the world of causality and, and time travel i don't know but it does have rules within itself. And it does tend to stick to those rules. Mm. Um, so yeah. I, I, I wouldn't be sure where to put it down. Because it, it does feature telekinesis. 
but it is presented as like a a random mutation in the populace rather than you know anything more. And I think that's that's what kind of sticks in the kind of like whether it is hard or soft sci-fi. If we do, it, even if it, if we want to put it in sci-fi at all. Yeah, yeah. I wonder actually, and this is something that's come to me just now, but I wonder whether there's a movement from one to the other, whether one of the two is is becoming more. To know is it is it something to do with the way that with the way that way we think about the world now that we're more prepared to look at the world in terms of hard sides. I think that I think yes I think that there's I would say for me culturally there's two big proponents of that that are pushing forward. One of which I think is we are in an age of tech. Mm. Yeah, you know the, the the amount of technology that touches our lives, and the amount of sort of even like column inches, shall we say, that it's devoted to technology, and we aren't in a great cultural revolution. We aren't in a great social revolution, particularly. We are in the middle of a great technical revolution. Yeah, and that's that's something we've talked about before with the 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 strides forward in formatting and art that we talked about in, when you were talking about the monuments. Yeah, yeah, and I think that. The other push is, I suppose, the rise of dystopia. Hmm. That that these days you don't see many utopian films. I mean, a lot of utopian films, for a natural point of view, tend to be dystopias, really. Um, but certainly with the rise of YA fiction, things like um, Hunger Games the Maze Runner, that kind of fiction, and both the rise of dystopia, zombie movies are um, dystopian fiction generally mm. and and that part of that I think is linked to things like the economic collapse and the general feeling that the world isn't getting better yeah. that we're getting fancier toys um, but there is I suppose, a general zeitgeist that the world isn't getting any better even though I think like, qualitatively it probably is getting better you know the crime is down quality of life's improving but we certainly in the UK are not being sold that narrative and it's not one that we're buying into. You know, we are. Everyone's buying into the world that life's just a bit crap these days. Mm. It's something. Did you, think, did you see um, Humans? There's a I haven't seen TV series on Channel Four recently. Well, it's it's good and it's um, from the same stable in terms of editing and sound and music and um, some of the cast as well as Utopia, which was brilliant um, a couple of years ago. Um, but humans plays with this idea of you have sort of the, the tomorrow's world fantasy in, in in the opening credits. Not, I mean, this is not giving away what happens in it at all. This is right at the beginning. You have it set up as wow, isn't it amazing what robots can do for us, and that's that's the narrative that's presented right at the beginning. And the whole the whole program is about well, what happens when something else happens to these robots, to humans, to the relationship between man and human, between robots and humans. Yeah, I think that's why why kind of the rise of this, the dystopian and the hard sci-fi, and why we're more in a, I think, a hard sci-fi era right now. Mm. I mean, there's a film coming out that's been trailed a lot called The Martian. Yes, yeah. Um, and I've, I've based on the book, and the book is straight up hard sci-fi. It's infamous for being... He's made he's made one leap in technology, which is that space suits are easy to get in and out of. You can do it yourself, and that is the only leap in technology that he's made. 
everything else in that book is all real science. Mm. Right, okay. Um, and it's it's had great plaudits because of that. Mm. And I do think we're in that kind of era. And space travel is, you know, we are currently reaping reaping the, the harvest of, of the, you know, the 15 year ago boon in space travel. Because now we're seeing Pluto, we're landing on comets and that kind of thing. And I do think that there is there is a rise in that kind of hard sci-fi currently. Mm. The only other thing that kind of kicked out to me, which is moving away from the science fiction thing a little bit, is the idea of identity that the film plays with. How do you mean? Because you've got these, we've got these two Joes, which essentially are the same person, mm. but also different people. You know, they, they are different people in life, but their interaction sends them down different routes. But you get the old Joe suddenly having memories of new Joe, mm. or young Joe, sorry. And there's interesting ideas, I think, around who who are are you the sum of your actions, the sum of your thoughts? If old Joe starts taking on the memories of young Joe, is he a different person? Mm. You know, I, I think that the film between those two characters has some interesting things to say about identity, and especially the idea of sort of fate um, because of the, the whole predestination of. Of, of the Rainmaker and that kind of world and the idea of this loop it, it, it's in the loop of time and causality that they try and break shall we say yeah. um, that there is this idea of who are who are people are we predestined to do certain things is time a flat circle like what the film I think is asking some interesting questions under the layer of this action film about what it means to be a person if you look at that on a longish timeline. Can you stop talking now? Because my head hurts. Uh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, and no, I, I see, what, see what you mean. And also, it, it's not just not just Joe, not just the identity of the protagonist. It's the identity of the Rainmaker as well. And mm. um, well, that you even you can get that in his name, um, which. If you haven't seen it written down, the notes I was jotting down as I went, I heard it as rainmaker, as in your rain on this earth, and it it was mm. sort of sort of a a world building thing about him, and it, it, he he was constructing his dominion. So that's what I I heard it as, and I think that's something that the the film encourages you to think, and it goes on, and you, you find out that actually it's. It's rainmaker in terms of sort of making the crops grow, and that's an interesting thing to think about in itself. Given that you see um, Emily Blunt starting up a uh, a machine to to water the fields right at the beginning, so you have a primitive sort of sort of primitive crop buster, but actually a so it's a leap forward in technology. Um, but you have that within the character of of the rainmaker himself. You have this. This well, are we talking about worlds being built here, or are you talking about um, something something to do with to do with harvesting, to do with reaching back to to the previous time? Um, and I think that's like you said, that that's something that the director director plays with in an interesting way. Um, I think that there's that looking beyond the the two main. I think if you can look at the film, almost every character in it has two identities. You've got Sarah, 
uh, Emily Clark's character, who is this kind of farm girl, stay-at-home mum, but you learn was previously a city party girl. Mm-hmm. You've got Piper Perebo, who plays a stripper and the single mum. Definitely the two versions of Joe. You've got you see two versions of Seth, the main character. You've got Kid Blue, who is is the sort of the one footed Gap Man, who's desperately trying to be someone he isn't. Mm. Uh, I think there's a lot, and even in the main character of Abe, who is a guy sent from the future to run the Loopers, he clearly has the two lives of the future and the now. And I think that a lot of the film does kind of has has the ideas of duality of the identity isn't a fixed point mm. that you can have more than one um, identity at the same time. I do think the film kind of handles this beautifully by uh, um, Bruce Willis saying, you know, we are applying hard language to a fuzzy concept. Mm. And I think the, with this film, it's very, this film is the fuzzy concept and we're the ones trying to apply hard language to, to some of the ideas presented. I think it's unfocused, but that kind of works. Yes, and I also think that, I mean, I've said right at the beginning that there are huge plot holes here that you could, it could trip you up, but actually they they aren't really, this isn't really a problem if you go with the film and if you go with this idea of a fuzzy concept. Um, Mm. And it's, it's an interesting exploration of the the relationship between the now and the future and the, and the passage of time and it's in, it, it there are lots of lots of interesting things to think about like the fact that Bruce Willis is supposed to be from the future but he's he's older and I know it's it's a really obvious thing to say but that that's something that you don't generally think about much you don't you don't think about the passage of time and it's not something that that's brought to our attention very much. Um, and he he comes from the future, and yet he is he is this character's he is this character's past in a way. And the uh, the future feels old. Mm. Yes. In, in, everyone you see from the future, Abe, Seth, Joe, feels that they're they're older gentlemen, and it feels old certainly. Mm. Yes. So Sam, any recommendations? based off this week's film um well yes i had yeah i had a, had a few i'm gonna get rid of that one because um instead i'm gonna recommend one that came to mind when you mentioned westerns and i i really think a good companion film to this is uh bushcast in sunlight skin because Particularly the the end of Looper, I suppose, and the end of Butch Cassidy, and the way the way it plays the idea of someone existing and not existing in in this film, Looper. But I think um, the that uh, Butch Cassidy would be a good one to go back to. Um, and my other more obvious one is um, I, I'm I'm sorry to do this to you because I have a feeling I'm stepping on your toes again. Um, but I would say Interstellar, um, okay, as a brilliant. If if you can get past certain jumps in logic, then it is a brilliant exploration of um, of time travel and of of space and of the relationship, 
also something that we we've talked about in this podcast the way that sci-fi films can be used as an exploration of the relationship between people and I think of the relationship between um, the the protagonist and his daughter in Interstellar particularly and his daughter who becomes older than him um, and I think Looper is a, is a good example of that that relationship between generations um, and also this idea of Combine the old and the new in a believable way, and you have um, the 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 farms of the future in Interstellar feel like um, sort of the dust bowl farms of the Midwest that you have in in Looper certainly. So those are my two fairly different recommendations for this week. Fair enough. As a quick aside, and we'll cover this one thing I'm sure. Really didn't like Interstellar. Okay, right. But we'll cover that in another episode. So, my recommendations for this week are both. Well, first up, there's an, a slightly obvious one, which I'm going to go. It's called Brick. Uh, Brick is a 2005 film by the same director, starring Jason Gordon-Levitt. Right. Which essentially is a jet black film noir set in a high school. Okay. Um, it comes complete with its own slang, its own bad guys and good guys, and all the trappings of a hard-boiled detective film noir, but set in an American high school. Jason okay. Levitt plays a loner trying to discover who, uh, trying to find his missing ex-girlfriend, and the world's populated with stoners and drunks and jocks and cheerleaders. Um, but all playing roles of femme fatales and mob bosses. It's hard to explain, but suffice to say it's brilliant. The acting is superb, and the, the direction, the, the ability of, of, of Ryan Johnson to mi- mix things together is evident here. Mm. I would hardly recommend Brick. Secondly, is a film from 2004, so just a year earlier, called Primer. Have you ever seen Primer, Sam? No. No. Primer uh, is a the film extended about... paint ti- advert. <laughs> it's a film about time travel. Right, okay. And it, it is it is the hardest of hard sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Um, it is entirely based on a scientific reading of time travel about some friends who invent it, basically. Right. And... It's about them as a group of friends and how they fall apart and all that kind of thing. The mechanics of sci-fi, of, of the time travel, once again, aren't covered. But it is, if it can be said, one of the most realistic portrayals of scientific invention that I've ever seen on screen. Okay. It is an amazing film. It won hundreds of awards. And that is my relation. It's... If you, it's it's in that if if you took all the Hollywood tentpole trappings away from Looper and just focused on the the ideas of what time travel can do, mm. this is what you get. Um, it's it's a hearty recommendation from me. Great. Um, and talking of hearty things from you, what what is your your heartfelt recommendation for next week? My heart recommendation next week is a film that not many people have seen. Um, I've seen it before I loved it I want to cover it here it's from 2012 and it's called Beasts of the Southern Wild
Beast of the Southern Wild is essentially the story of a, of a six-year-old girl living in uh, the uh, bayou in America and the life of her, her father. Right. But it's so much more than that as well. Good. And I don't want to cover too much. We'll cover it all next week. Um, but that's my pick for next week. So, guys, if you're watching along at home, please go and find it. I don't know if it's on Netflix or Hulu or any of these things. Go and find it. It is. It's a very interesting film and very interesting to talk about with Sam. Good. Um, it it was one that I meant to see at the time and was annoyed that I didn't. So I'm pleased that we get get a chance to talk about it. And I will spend the week practicing saying convention in Wallace. Um, yes. Alternatively, <laughs> I'll just record myself saying it once. Um, if you would like to get hold of us, um, please do on Twitter at Prestige Podcast or me at Life underscore Academic. Or me at Rob Kaiju. And please don't, don't forget to... Um, give us a thumbs up, recommendation, like on iTunes, um, SoundCloud, however you listen to the podcast. It's greatly appreciated and we do want to get to as many people as possible. So thanks guys and we will see you all back here next week. Bye. Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr! Arg.